Lucienne Nicholson grew up in Port-au-Prince, the bustling capital of Haiti. While she went to school in the city, she spent summers on her grandmother's farm in the nearby hills. There, she discovered a profound connection to nature that she's carried throughout her entire life. On my grandmother's farm, it was total liberation, total freedom. And that's where I discovered tall canopies of mahogany trees. I knew that it's hot, 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 hot under your feet in the sun, but the shades of tree will keep you cool and, and, and safe. So the closeness to nature, the sense of being held, being fed, and being in community with your family, and also not having any fear that anyone will chase you off or limit your imagination because this is your land. Lucienne has fond memories of the summers she spent on her grandmother's land. She felt at home amongst the trees and the wilderness. When she immigrated to the U.S., she realized that many kids, especially people of color, don't have the same access to nature that she did. That's why Lucienne took matters into her own hands and started an organization to get young people outside. When she introduces kids to trails and parks, she watches their relationship with nature change in real time. When the children arrive at the head of the trail, there will be the apprehension because for nearly every last one of them, it will be the first time. And then seeing the wonder in their eyes when they see that first deer, when they see that, that chipmunk and scroll for the first time in the natural habitat, I mean, the moment is priceless. Without them being taken into nature, their imagination will not have been triggered and tap into their very brilliant consciousness that tell them what is possible here. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Lucienne Nicholson is a mother, a hiker, a gardener, and an activist. She's passionate about the fact that as humans, each of us has an inherent right to enjoy nature. Lucienne has built an entire nonprofit around this idea. It's called Inclusive Woods and Us. She personally knows the impact that time outside can have on physical, mental, and emotional health. Lucienne's own relationship with nature found its roots back in Haiti when she was just a little girl. Lucia Nicholson, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thank you so much, Shelby. I'm so glad to be here. So Lucia, I did some research on you and I read you grew up in Haiti and that during the school year, you kind of lived in this busy sort of concrete jungle in the capital city of Port-au-Prince. But summer was spent at grandmother's house in the Northeast Hills of Haiti on a coffee and chocolate farm. So first of all, I would just love for you to tell us a story about growing up, especially those times when you weren't in school at your grandmother's house. What was that like? Oh, well, you know, we all want to be popular. <laughs> so naturally, I didn't understand my mother's vision, her wisdom I didn't quite get. But we live in the capital. It was very chaotic. And uh, the capital, so everything happened. So it was always packed beyond busting levels. So my mother will take us to her ancestral land, to my grandmother's farm. And uh, we call her Gun. 
which is in Haitian Creole, which means grandmother. So to, when we will head there to Grand's farm, it wasn't just a farm. It wasn't just my grand. It was all the uncles and great uncles, aunties and great aunties. All most of my relatives on my maternal side were living in the hills. And in the hills, I say that instead of nature, those learned quote-unquote, people from the capital, they have become so disassociated from nature that they come to have maligning attitude towards people who are still attached to the land. So going there was almost like a secret. You didn't want your classmate to know that you are not heading to Paris, France, or Toronto, Canada, or Brooklyn, New York, or even staying in the chaotic capital of of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. You felt ashamed to say you are going to the hills because learned people, cool people, didn't go to the hill. But once we get there, I remember the freedom that I will encounter being there on my grandmother's land and feeling total freedom because the capital, my parents took us there because that where you have access to education. If you want to K through 12 and beyond education, uh, Haiti at the time was not fully developed. So if you really wanted your child to have a learned uh, uh, experience and possibly uh, find a gateway to be an immigrant to a country with more material gains than you wanted to be in the capital. So that's why my parents took me there. But in the capital, we were renters. So you have uh, limitations, right? I can't go on planting trees on somebody's property, right? But every summer, the closeness to nature, the sense of being held, being fed, uh, experiencing nature, and being in community with your family, and also not having any fear that anyone will chase you off or limit your imagination because this is your land. This is your grand's land. So that was my first encounter where true, true freedom feels and look like. Mm. Do you have like any specific memories from grandma's house that you'll just never forget, like a specific day or a specific time? Or uh, For me, it's always going to be about the resilience that I learned in, uh, from nature. I remember my grandmother, she was going over to the next village to visit another family member. And then there was a big storm. And uh, the storm was so heavy that my grandmother took shelter under a big tree. It was my grandmother and I. There across from us, there was this row of very tall, majestic bamboo uh, trees. And I remember they were having this dialogue with the wind and the and the slashing rain and um, dancing this way and that way. And at some point, the wind won, I thought anyway. And the bamboo trees just bent to the force of the wind. And I remember my deep sadness. And I remember looking at my gran and I said, oh, gran, I'm so sad. The wind and the storm just killed the bamboo trees. And my grandma said, no, the trees didn't die because they know when to give way. They understood the struggle for for the wind to win. And they know by bending down low, let the wind pass over, they'll still be alive and they can rise up again, but stronger the next time. In her teenage years, Lucienne and her parents left Haiti behind and immigrated to the U.S. to pursue the American dream. She had to say goodbye to her community and leave behind her grandmother's farm. 
She would no longer be roaming under tree canopies or drinking fresh water from bubbling springs. On top of the culture shock of arriving in New York City, she came to the U.S. at a turbulent time in American history. It was 1974, just after the civil rights movement. Schools had recently integrated and the racial tension was high. So you eventually had to leave Haiti and you come to the U.S. at age 16, which 16 is not an easy year, especially, I think, for a young woman. I know there's a lot changing just growing up as a woman and then moving to a totally new country that could not have been easy for you. So how did you navigate? How did you navigate this big move? Well, this is really a case where uh, you really have to experience something to really understand it. As an immigrant teenage girl, imagine if you can, you're 16 years old and you have a life. Uh, you have grandparents, extended family members, you have friends, neighbors. Uh, if you're religious, you have your church. So this is your entire world. And it's about to be torn apart, ruptured within four, five hours of an airline flight. And I left behind everything that I just listed, including my first little boyfriend. Um, and I landed in New York City. It was January and it was a cold, bitter, gray day. And I just left the seashore swaying palm trees. And here I'm five hours later, I'm at JFK. And it was really like landing on another planet uh, because at once I lost my language. Although I spoke two languages, I spoke Haitian Creole, which I still do, and I spoke French, which I still do. But these two languages just might as well not have existed at all because I landed on American English soil. And I remember losing my capacity to communicate. And that was the first shock treatment for me. How do you make a new home in a space like that? And I remember driving from the airport to Brooklyn, where we were going to be staying. I remember seeing all of the trees bare and naked and looking very sad. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I wish I would cut these dead trees. that just make it even more depressive to be here. I need trees that have leaves. So um, getting to my community, by the time the taxi brought us there, there were no trees to be, to be seen. So landing there, having lost my language for a while. And I didn't like where I was living because not only the trees were looking sad, but I had no trees to even talk about. Um, I was one of the immigrants from my community who would be bused out from our underserved community. We didn't have good school in our community. The same way we didn't have nature around us in our community. So I was bused from my community of West Indian immigrants to a well-to-do middle-class, all-white community in Brooklyn where I went to high school. And this was the 70s? That was the 70s. That was 1974, to be sure. Wow. I'm just about 65 years young. And I've been in America for 48 years. Yeah, that's a, that's a really wild time. Yes, indeed. I didn't know I was coming just at the heel of the civil rights movement. And people were angry. And the, the school environment was very hostile. Uh, there were parents who wanted to be physical because children who looked like me were 
made to attend the school that they think should be reserved for just white children inside their own community. And then we moved from winter to springtime. And then the trees started to flourish. Then you see the early green color of spring, which I love. And there was plentiful in the community where my high school was, but not in communities where I lived. And once everything flushed out and I see all the beautiful pocket parks that there were near my school, and then the trees that have now, they're in full foliage and the shade coming back and the tree canopy started touching each other. And I said to myself, oh, it's easy. I don't mind living here. I would love to live here. Apparently, my parents don't know about this community. So I'm going to tell them that uh, we're going to have to move over near my high school. And I don't have to be bussed out for a long hour or whatever time it was to get to my high school at the crack of dawn. So when I proposed this idea to my friends who were already living in America much longer than I, and those who were born in America were black like I am, and the few whites that were still in my black community after the white flight, then they said, oh, you have to be crazy. You can't live there. I said, why not? Why can I live there for just wanting to live there? They said, because you'll get hurt. People will harm you. I say, I, I, I like you, right? I think you're a nice, nice girl from the island, but my uncle, my brothers, my mom, everybody will go after you. You, you, you can't move in our community. It's not allowed in America. And of course, I'm determined. I took it upon myself to still try. So I will call and I have my French, Frenchie, they call it those days, accent. So I call and I will ask to rent and they couldn't place me. Because they couldn't place me, they actually will offer me choices upon choices of apartments so I can move into that green space that I envision I need for my mental and physical wellness. And then I will take my little money and, and I will get on the bus. I'll tell my parents I'm going to get us an apartment because that's what happens with young immigrants. When your parents don't speak the language, you become the adult. You become the person tracing the pathway through that American dream for them. And so I told my parents, I'll get us out of here. And after two or three attempts, I learned the sad truth was confirming to me that indeed, that is a thing in America, that my access to nature and green space is actually structurally constructed around me. So this was when I discovered that it's not only housing that is segregated, it's also nature. Because when you put people in a space where they live and you don't put nature around them, it is a form of segregation of nature. Lucienne started to realize that her lack of access to nature was built into the segregation of American cities. Her neighborhood, which was largely an immigrant and African-American community, hardly had any green space. But Lucien needed to be around trees. Being outside improved her mood, her mental health, and her physical well-being. When she was 22, Lucien moved to Miami, and she was finally reunited with palm trees and tropical air. Lucien especially loved being so close to the ocean. You have this really intimate connection with nature. You've said, I've told so much to the ocean that it could write an entire series about my life. Talk to me about that. 
just talking about the ocean, if you could see me, make my eyes well up a little bit. That's how closely we are connected. Uh, nature is holistic, right? It's hard to experience it. But each one of us, when we really open up to nature, we're going to find a little place that is just ours. Uh, while I appreciate mountains, I love everything that is nature, even in a drop of water or snowflake. But the ocean, the ocean, whole ocean anywhere is my healing place. That's where I go. I tell stories. I share secrets with the ocean. The ocean only offers one thing back. It's its beauty, its wisdom, and its capacity to heal. I love that. I think we need to take you um, either surfing or stand-up paddleboarding at some point in your life. Wow. I would love that. The experience of riding a wave in the ocean is is pretty magical. But I think that, you know, the ocean can really be such a profound healer and communicator with us if you listen and you know how to talk to it, which clearly you do. Indeed. Um, what I love about the ocean also, I remember when the waves will come in, I lived in South Florida and uh, I remember finding a heart-shaped seed that we have trees for in Haiti, but that don't grow in South Florida. And it already had uh, little pieces of coral that has grown on its surface and tells me that it's been there for a long time. And it was a particular day where I needed to be in touch with myself and with the ocean. And finding that heart that came from that tree from my childhood from the Caribbean, and it came through a wave and just landed at my feet. For me, it was significant. So I will tell my stories to the wave and ask them to take them back to the sea, the ocean, and help me to go to the next day unencumbered and feeling a bit lighter by whatever the difficulties were that I brought to the waves. And you seem very spiritual. Yes. Where did you get that from? And how does that manifest for you? I grew up Catholic um, and went to church. I did my catechism, did my first communion and my confirmation, etc. And uh, I also am a child of the Haitian uh, um, cultural practices of voodoo. And what I mean by that, it has just like Christianity has many levels, many ways of manifesting itself. In When I say a child of voodoo, it doesn't mean that I was a high priestess or my mother or, or my father were. What it means is that we were still connected to that culture and religion, if you will, that came from Africa with the slaves. And the part of it that my ancestors practiced was a reverence for the land, for earth. So to anyone listening who heard the word voodoo and have a reaction towards it as a, a backward thinking for uneducated people, I would say check yourself twice, not once. The thing with the Haitian voodoo practice for the reference for, for the earth, for their land, will prevent the deforestation that we see the destruction that we see without the presence of the other form of, of uh, money-making and commerce, which has also invaded the spaces in Haiti. I know that, but it's not coming from these people who actually talk to their trees and feed their ancestors by libation, pouring coffee and hot cocoa and, and uh, uh, moonshine and things like that 
to honor the ancestors that they feel are gone materially, physically from the world, but still are with them through different form of natural expression, whether it's that big moth that scared the life out of me when it comes to visit, because it's supposed to be an embodiment of my ancestors, or um, at night uh, when we hear certain noise and not to worry because ancestors are passing through. So that connection with uh, uh, practice that honors your ancestors, even in the beyond, and that connection with the practice that respect the earth that will not fit itself until it fits the earth, that connection with the culture that asks you not to hurt the tree or the plant because you don't know it could be a house, a place of rest for, for an entity, for uh, a spirit that you don't know yet, I think is a very good way of being because it protects the environment. From a young age, Lucian's elders taught her about their ancestors' relationship to the earth. Her Haitian culture emphasizes respect for all living things, trees, birds, even the smallest bugs on the ground. Those spiritual lessons are deeply important to Lucien. They define her. Today, her reverence for the natural world has inspired her life's calling. When we come back, Lucien explains how Haitian values show up in her work with the young people of Rochester, New York. When Lucien was in her 20s and 30s, she focused on getting an education and raising a family. In search of the best school districts to enroll her kids, she landed in Rochester, New York. It was a perfect fit. Her children would get a quality education, and she could explore the natural beauty of the Adirondacks. After her kids grew up and left the nest, Lucienne was ready to spend as much time in nature as possible. But she didn't feel safe outside by herself in these historically white spaces. If Lucienne was feeling this way as a grown woman, then she figured young Black people must be facing the same problem. I want to talk about Inclusive Woods and Us. Tell me about this organization, when you founded it, and how it came to be. Inclusive Woods and Us is a vision and a mission that was brought to me by structural racism. I was put in that space to do this work because my belief is it's not just to talk about what the problems are, it's to bring forward my own solution. And as I saw the problem I encountered, two things came to mind. Everything I did at the time when I was between 16 and, and 20 years old, when I was very much determined to see how I can get into nature, including from our meager collective salaries, I will become a member of the CR Club. I become a member of the Nature Conservancy because I see those magazines in the libraries and I will send it for a membership. And I thought by becoming a member, then it will validate my presence. It still didn't give me that access. And then I stopped being a member. And all the while, undauntedly, I went about my life. But what was denied to me was denied to all. I never forgot what happened to me. And I never forgot that I told myself, 
this problem here is a problem to be addressed, to be resolved. However, in my heart of heart, I was hoping that that will not be a need anymore. And then I can just go wildly into nature and mind my business and have a good time. Unfortunately, after raising my children and turning my gaze to my own self now and all of the things I wanted to be when I grew up after 50, there's a knock on my heart's door telling me to remember, remember Brooklyn, remember what happened to me as a young immigrant. Remember that it is still happening. Remember the burning while black is happening. And as somebody who lives an authentic life, I could move forward with my own dream for myself. So my dream was to go from coast to coast, from, from, from England, coast to coast, go to France and go throughout Europe where I have friends and just for the first time experience what I couldn't have 40 years ago. That was when my white friends uh, in college I met in New York City were saying, I'm studying abroad. I'm going to ride the train in Italy. I'm going to do this and that. And I said, I too can do that. Age is a number. I can do this now. I could have. I'm in a position to do it now. But that promise I made as an activist for universal human rights. I know too well that even when I have in America acquired some uh, um, money, lots of education, transportation, friends, what have you, I know there are spaces in America that can only penetrate under the protection and the gaze of white friends. And I find that repulsive. It's showing me that my liberation is not complete. The trust was clear to me that I had to be true to myself. And I, instead of pursuing my wildness, I was going to dedicate myself at least for a while to achieving the wildness of others through woods and us, creating access to nature for all, but specifically for people who look like me. Do you have any stories of kids who've gone in the program and, and you've taken them and, and they've been changed or just, just any stories about the impact of your work? Oh, this is the biggest joy uh, for me is time after time when the children arrive at the head of the trail, there will be the apprehension because for nearly every last one of them, it will be the first time that they are at the head of a trail. At first, there is the, I don't, I'm afraid, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that, um, <laughs> this is boring, why are we here? And then seeing the wonder in their eyes, to hear them quiet down, and when they see that first deer, when they see that that. Uh, chipmunk and scroll for the first time in the natural habitat, uh, when they encounter a feather or a bird goes scooping over their heads, I mean, the moment is priceless. I have had children on our hike discovering for the first time that they want to live in the woods forever, and they want to know what they can do for a living that will allow them to live in the woods forever. So without them being taken into nature, into the woods, then their imagination will not have been triggered and tap into their very brilliant consciousness that tell them what is possible here, what is next here, and are you, what, how do you get there? So I love when they make the connection of what can I do so that, you know, like Peter Pan, I never grow up. I can be here all the time. So that's a part that I like. I also like the fact when they say, for instance, in leadership, I... 
I always have the children help lead the hikes. And I, I, I instill in them the qualities and good leadership skills. And I allow them to lead and co-lead. The pride that they feel. For example, one of the young boys who came with us is really tall for his age. Super, super quiet and self-containing. And I noticed that. And then he became one of the leaders. When the hike was over, I approached him. I wanted to know if he wanted to share with us how it felt like to be a leader. He said, I'm always the last one. And it felt really good to finally be first, to be able to lead. And this moment breaks me, not because of sadness, because of pure joy. Because to know that this child entered the woods one way, and he's transformed, and he's going to always see himself. I may not be the raucous leader, but I am a leader. And this woman here, this woods in us, saw that in me. I don't know what it's going to take him, but as somebody was once a child, I know that is a bit of money in his wallet. Today, Inclusive Woods and Us works with local schools and organizations to lead guided hikes and facilitate time outside in nature. Like many nonprofits, funding remains an obstacle. Money and gear always welcome contributions. Still, Lucienne is making a difference. Kids who participate in Woods and Us discover the joy, the freedom, and the sense of belonging that can be found in nature. I think altruism is a really powerful why to pursuing your wild idea. And, you know, you have this wild idea of making making nature available for everyone, no matter what. You know, advice to people who want to pursue something so wild and big as this. First thing I tell people, it's like everything else that you do. Be authentic. Be real in understanding why you want to pursue this in the first place. I can ascertain that you're not going to be very happy for very long if you think it can happen overnight. You're going to discover you're only one person. Don't do it because it's sexy, because you're going to find out, you're going to have a lot of alone time to figure out why you are on this path in the first place. And it is discovering that moment of truth that's going to get you up that chair, dry your eyeballs, and put on your boots and stomp out your door, hit the ground again to make this happen. Because you recognize the value of your mission and the truthfulness of your purpose. I will advise people to really understand the difference between a me goal and an our goal. Oftentimes, I see some entities masking a me goal inside of an our goal. I know clearly delineated for me in my consciousness what my me goals are. So the our goal space is where you, the altruism you spoke about, comes through, Shelby. That's when you are willing to take the suffering, meaning that not enough sleep, spending your own money sometimes, traveling great distances like I do and still feel fired up and you're ready to take on another challenge for your community. 
So you have to have a lot of energy inside of you to carry this day in, day out. In addition, you also have to be ready to understand and our mission is actually what exactly what it says. You have to bring everyone with you. It's not about me or my ego. It's about being a model for the community to see how collaboration shows up, how love shows up, how collectivism shows up for the greater good. So we each are going to come into that space of finding a nonprofit for different reasons, but understand your reason. So this is what it is for me for Woods and Us. You talked about the values that were instilled in you during your childhood in Haiti. How have those values led you to where you are now? Yes, indeed. My grandmother, as an example, when I came to America here, the, we have a new thing that leave no, hand be, no child behind, leave no one behind. And so it's something that is new. Oh, oh, by the way, we shouldn't do that. Whereas I grew up in a place where it is a manifestation of self. You leave no one behind. You are independently working very, very hard. At the same time, you're working with the collective because you know that as we work very hard together, we're stronger, we can help and support each other. I have examples of the leave no one behind. My grandmother had a lot of land. And I remember how there will be a few people, it was a rare event, but there'll be a few people, especially women who were left destitute. Maybe they didn't get married and they didn't inherit land because the land went to the brother. My grandmother will then invite, I remember a particular old lady of the others uh, named Tete, and my grandmother allowed her to build a small, like a log house on her land, not too far from us, so she was not isolated. And when my grandmother would give her a small plot of land, enough for her to grow enough food to eat for her dignity. That's another thing. You have to allow people, everyone can give something back in the collective. So Tete will try to do a little work here and there, whatever she can do, maybe help turning over the cacao beans that are drying or the coffee beans that are drying, very simple things. But Tete live with dignity, on my grandmother's land, and she was fully protected because it was a leave no one behind. We looked out for each other. So when I say leave no one behind, this is how I do it in us. This is how I live my life. No one should be excluded from nature's magic. From watching the sun sparkle through the leaves to seeing a snake slither across a trail, those magical experiences outside stick with us. With Inclusive Woods in Us, Lucienne is working to make these moments possible for everyone. Lucienne, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Your vision is big. I'm excited to see how Inclusive Woods in Us continues to grow. If you want to contribute to Inclusive Woods and Us, check out their website, inclusivewoodsandus.org. If you or someone you know has access to land and can host Inclusive Woods and Us, you should definitely contact Lucienne on the website. If you want to follow the growth of this incredible organization, you can also follow them on Instagram at Woods and Us. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative, and our senior producer is Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow this show, when you rate it, 
and when you review it because we read all your reviews wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.